CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Here we go. In three, two, one. When I was a kid, I loved the Batman TV show. Oh, wow. That's interesting. When, when did she say that? I forget. Wait, what was that apropos to? Do you remember? I believe it was for the guy who rode the horse. Oh, yes. The guy who rode the horse and then got in trouble for uh, not taking care of the horse. And Yes. Uh, the urban cowboy. Right. I believe that guy, was one. Yeah, I remember that. Wow, dude, that was back in the day. Have the you early seen... part of Lori Lightfoot's minute. You know, it's it's not even been, well, it's been three years, but it seems a lot longer. It seems like a long time. One of your favorite songs. I've never heard that in my life. All right, your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, May 25th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It's almost coming up, guys. Almost here, Kathy. Did you know Illinois has an average monthly revenue of over $100 million from recreational cannabis sales? As of 2022, Chicago hosts an impressive 44 cannabis dispensaries. The Windy City is the perfect place for the Illinois Cannabis Convention. It's June 10th through the 11th. It's brought to you by NECAN. The convention will be the largest gathering of the existing local medical cannabis industry and those getting in to the new adult use recreational market. Ben's drinking tea. Is that cannabis tea? Is that reefer tea? Uh, I wish it were, oh. but no, it's just tea with honey. I always drink with honey. The convention will showcase more than 100 companies, brands, and product lines, maybe reefer tea. There's also four full programming tracks running each day for medical, business, cultivation, and social justice, featuring dozens of expert speakers with practical knowledge and advice for attendees of all levels of experience. All are welcome. Go to NECAN.com slash Illinois, N-E-C-A-N-N.com slash Illinois for information and to register. It is Wednesday, May 25th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. your host there is not marijuana in his tea chicago raider columnist ben jarofsky hello everybody ben jarofsky here we're calling this uh, death in texas wednesday and here's why well i think we all know why uh we um the news hit about uh, yesterday i want to say about four o'clock in the afternoon i've lost track of time ladies and gentlemen and the thing is uh i was particularly vulnerable because i got this cold 
I don't want to equate the the like the little colds that I have, the little mini afflictions I have to the horror, the carnage of what goes in Texas. But I think you all understand what I'm saying. It's like when you have that a cold, you're just kind of vulnerable and just everything just seems just you, it's hard to see the hope in the world. And uh, when I read the story, even with out a cold uh, yesterday, when I read that uh, the first articles coming in over the uh, uh, the Internet about the shootings in Texas in the public school in Texas, it was just overwhelming and so sad and so depressing. It's like I've been here before. I don't know what to say. I'm supposed to say something. You come on the show. You're supposed to say something on a podcast. You're supposed to have an opinion. You're supposed to have like confidently state. You know, how what should be done in the world? And folks, half the time, I don't I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, you would think after Sandy Hook back in 2012, when what was it? 20 kids were shot in the classroom in Connecticut that uh, we would have some kind of meaningful gun control, like background checks, try to keep guns out of the hands of psychopaths, murderers. You know, people who are up to no good. Just, I don't know, control the total number of guns that are. I, I understand that I'm not a gun advocate. I, I get that. There's a lot of people out there who love the guns. They love to shoot, go hunting. You know, they just, they love. Happiness is a warm gun, to quote John Lennon. They just love to look at their weaponry. I get that. I understand that. I'm not like that. That's fine. Different strokes for different folks. But this just obsession with being able to buy as much weaponry as you can. And it's always like this weird moments, like where people stock up on guns. So, for instance, if the Democrats, I remember when Obama was reelected in 2012 and it was like there were news stories saying that people are stocking up on guns. I'm like, why? I'm just saying it's not that rational. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen in a second term with Obama that makes it? necessary for you to buy like 10 more guns that didn't happen in the first term of Obama. People are just not rational uh, on this subject. And um, it, so much of it is just like, so much of it's just an extension of a culture wars that goes back to the sixties. I was just thinking about this uh, when uh, D was talking about reefer at the outset of the show, uh, there was a funny little bit in uh, Shia Capos today, uh, Dennis. I don't know if you saw this at the end. Uh, she wrote Shia Capos, of course, the, the great political reporter for Politico. Uh, without her, I don't know what we would do. That is correct. <laughs> that is so correct. Shia Capos, God bless you. Anyway, uh, so she has at the end, she goes, we asked how your views on weed have changed or not since Illinois legalized cannabis. And some lawyer wrote in and said, quote, I was against weed before legalization and still am because weed allows people to sleepwalk through life instead of putting themselves to their highest person purpose. I know this makes me sound like a funny daddy. Yeah, it makes you sound like a funny daddy. Of course it does. <laughs> sound like a complete funny daddy. What I don't understand when it comes to weed is like in this one moment in time. Why why wouldn't you be uh, why why wouldn't you have the same attitude about alcohol? You know, make, instead of sleepwalk, I guess it's stagger through life. So it's kind of weird. It's like these these old um, culture battles still going on from the 60s. And it's the same thing with the guns. It's just like, we got our guns. You can't take our guns away. You, we will not allow you to take our guns away. And then they stifle uh, in Congress. And this is the part that I, I truly uh, can't comprehend. Legislation that would hold gun manufacturers uh, responsible for the carnage their weapons cause. And so you could sue them like you could sue a cigarette company 
uh, tobacco company for the cancer caused by its product. I don't know why people are against that. You would see gun manufacturers, if this law were passed, uh, really carefully monitoring the sale of their weaponry. And, uh, and yet this is obsession. And I don't know, politically, I mean, it's all going to tie together. We've got Monroe Anderson coming on, Andrew Ellison, brilliant political analyst. The guy knows his uh, politics inside out. I, I say he's as good as that guy on uh, MSNBC. The, I can't remember the guy's name. I know Monroe knows the guy's name. But the guy with the, he, he has his shirt sleeves rolled up, and he, he's like a total geek when it comes to politics. And he goes, let's look at the map. <laughs> you know, I forget the dude's name, but I always get a kick out of him. But Andrew Ellison, man, he could give that guy a run for his money, whatever his name is. Monroe knows the name, because Monroe loves MSNBC. Oh, uh, Monroe, people can't see this, but we just got a whole tour of his place. It's huge. No, Monroe. Yeah, that's uh, some kind of work going on there. And I had to turn the sound off. But uh, anyway, uh, so it'll be it. I'll be watching very closely uh, how this plays out politically, whether it could be any traction for sanity in this country on gun control. <laughs> Excuse me. I have this cold. I'm with Steve Kerr on this. Steve Kerr, of course, the former uh, great guard for the Chicago Bulls. I always feel compelled like a. I'll introduce a sports name, and I'm always a little nervous that people won't know who it is. And let's face it, folks, 90% of you listen to the show do not know who Steve Kerr is. And so, you know, I feel compelled to tell you who Steve Kerr is. That's I, I've, that's a function I have. I tell non-sports fans about sports. So Steve Kerr uh, at the pregame uh, press conference before last night's Dallas Mavericks-Golden State Warriors game, he's the coach of the Golden State Warriors, just went on a, a a passionate rant about the lack of gun control, the insanity of politics. And I know most of you have probably seen it by now because it's been all over the internet. Everybody's sharing it. Uh, and he speaks so well for people like myself. I think Monroe, people like Monroe, I'm not quite sure. I'm probably Andrew Ellison as well, but we're going to get into it. Does he speak for people outside of our little blue bubble? Uh, are they turned off by what Steve Kerr did? Will it have a consequence greater um, than just um, speaking to people like me. We will see. But uh, I got to tell you, that was one of the few moments last night where I felt any, I don't even know if hope is the right word, but I just felt somebody was expressing what had to be expressed and saying it uh, just without holding back in any way. And he went right at Mitch McConnell. uh, And he named names. And for, in the world of sports, that takes a lot of guts because they want to play a very neutral. We'll get into that a little bit. Uh, Monroe is going to be asked about the R word. Yes, we're going to be talking before uh, the show is over the R word and how white people really don't like to use the R word. Uh, but Steve Kerr called it out, and I uh, got to give him a lot of credit. All right, Monroe, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, you looking uh, Alan Hardy. Yeah, um, we, 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 we just had fireworks in Texas. Big time. Um, as, as you know, uh, Beto is running against Abbott. Abbott's holding a press conference and giving the same old, same old, you know, um, what is it, our hearts and prayers are with you, that type of stuff, and coming up with all kinds of details that were not of much use. Beto crashed the press conference and told, said to him that you're saying the same old stuff, etc. to which Abbott says, um, these people are hurting, their hearts are hurting, and you're doing a political stunt 
on it. It's it's then so they they basically force him out. The police, the sheriff's office, force him out, and so he holds a press conference outside, and he he. What Abbott is saying, of course, is that now is not the time to talk about the shooting. This is what they say every time, of course. And Beto went through a whole list of, of shootings that had happened and said that was the time, and that was the time, and that was the time. And if we'd done it any time before then, this wouldn't be happening. And so their, their press conference is still going on. Abbott's press conference is still going on. But this is gonna this is gonna be leading the news tonight for sure. This confrontation, and we'll see. I I, I don't think that Abbott has. I mean, you know, they're they're shucking and jiving and doing all this. How great the police were. Um, the, the the superintendent of schools talked about how brave the teachers were because they helped the children out. You know, it's everything but the thing, the guns. Yeah. And Abbott was asked about the guns. And he said that um, 18-year-olds have been able, that law's on the books for, since for 60 years or something, how 18-year-olds could buy a long gun. Now, I, I would imagine that the back 60 years ago, they, they weren't saying a 18-year-old could buy a machine gun, but that's something altogether different. So anyway, um, I, I, I thank you for bring, uh, breaking that news. I had missed it, of course. I've been preparing for the show. Right. So uh, I missed it. No, no, literally, it started about the time you came on the air, I mean, or a few minutes before. Or you started taping, I don't know. You started your pet podcast. Yeah. Well, well let me ask you this. Um, and oh, one other thing before, then you could ask me. Right now, basically, Abbott is doing the mental health discussion. How uh, we need to do stuff for mental health, as President Biden said last night in his news conference. Everybody got crazy people in their country, but but everybody doesn't have their crazy people killing children. Yeah, that's a, a very valid point, and to which I would add this. The mental health conversation that is raised by Republicans after a mass shooting, and I've heard Trump raise it, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is so upsetting because they never do anything other than raise the topic. Right. We in the city of Chicago struggle with the issues of mental illness. We could use some help. We could use some clinics. You, we could use some clinicians. We could use some doctors. School teachers had to go on strike in Chicago to get nurses and clinicians in the public schools. I don't recall right. MAGA anywhere coming to the aid of the school teachers when they were demanding that. In other words, they only invoke the concept of mental health issues, Monroe, uh, as just to avoid the issue of whether we should have more regulation of guns. Right. And then as soon as the fixation with that particular mass shooting is passed, they don't do anything about it. Right. And that's what I find so frustrating. Uh, we could. Yeah. Well, Beto O'Rourke was very frustrated. Obviously. I mean, he just, yeah. And, and, and Abbott is, is him and a and talking about mental illness and, um, 
how how great the uh, the the brave officers confronted the AT hero. You know, it's it, it's and of course we all should be heartbroken and, and grieving and um, not talk about it. Basically, don't, don't talk. Yeah, about don't it. talk about it. control. Yeah, uh, anything to uh, divert us. And then it's, again, folks, right. as soon as the attention the hard focus on the mass shooting has ended and we move on as we do in the news cycle, they will stop. You will not hear a Republican advocate for more money for health. There was just a story in the sun times today about how Lauren Underwood, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood uh, from the Western suburbs is pushing to get an extension through Congress uh, for uh, Obamacare because Obamacare uh, stipulations governing the cost of Obamacare are about to expire and it's going to go up. And Abbott just mentioned Chicago. He said there are real gun laws in in, in uh, Chicago and New York and California. And yeah. people are still getting shot every weekend in Chicago. So that's that's another r- red herring. Yeah. Well, that's the, the gun laws in Chicago uh, are inadequate. If you just have gun laws in the city of Chicago, that's right. it. Uh, but right. no gun laws in the state of Indiana, no gun right. laws in some of the suburbs, uh, then you're not doing yourself any good. You're not doing any favor. You need federal gun laws. We have exactly. to, as a country, commit ourselves right. to trying to eradicate this carnage, our obsession with weaponry. And uh, so the Republicans love bringing up Chicago, but they get, then again, they don't help us at all. I mean, again, I'll say it. Monroe, uh, Mayor Rahm closed six mental health clinics. He thought that was a smart thing to do. Uh, it was a disgrace. I've not seen any Republicans uh, offer to reopen mental health clinics in the city of Chicago. I've no, seen no. no. And going back to what I said about Lauren Underwood, uh, they can't get one Republican vote uh, to um, uh, extend the uh, protection for folks to keep the uh, Obamacare from going up. So this is basic health care. You talk about mental health. This is basic health care, and you can't find one Republican to support her. And yet, in the aftermath of a shooting, they'll talk about – they do it in very strange ways, uh, Monroe. The, um, I'll read you the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm going to thank Frank for sending this to me. Uh, here's Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, the uh, right-wing uh, congresswoman from Georgia. Uh, who was victorious yesterday, I guess, in her primary. We'll be talking about with Andrew Ellison. Quote, our nation needs to take a serious look at the state of mental health today. That's her comment. What does that even mean? You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, right. are you suggesting? Well, that's the, the vaguest statement. It says nothing. Right. Right. So, no, it's, you know, they are so full of crap. And it's, it's just amazing to me. And... <laughs> for these midterms if the democrats stop um, criticizing each other for minor things that one did or didn't do etc and their whole every democrat who's running for anything dog catcher up up to um senate should say say to talk about um guns abortions, and voting rights. And those should be, no matter what the topic, that's what they should talk and, and what, sorry, all under the umbrella of how crazy the Republicans are and in, and in what ways they're crazy. 
And that's all they should be. That should be the drum about, they, 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 you know, they should not be talking about, well, we, 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 we wanted um, this liberal um, position versus that liberal um, position. And, and don't, don't talk policy at all. Just talk about how crazy the Republicans are and how screwed up things are, and it's because of the Republicans. Well, that uh, t- uh, we'll get into this with Andrew Ellison because uh, I'm going to ask him about his thoughts on Beto O'Rourke versus Gregory Abbott. Because uh, just to, but just to follow up on you said O'Rourke, uh, this is his second statewide run. His first was for Senate against uh, Ted Cruz, and he got I think like 48 percent of the vote, something like that. Yeah, um, close, but uh, obviously he did not win. Uh, and he was running more of a we're all in this together type of campaign, uh, bipartisanship. This was in 2018 in the middle of uh, the Trump presidency. Uh, and I feel like he's abandoned that to a certain degree. You know what I'm saying, Monroe, that uh, based on what you told me and just as a carryover from his presidential campaign, which was a disaster, as we all know, uh, he's more barbed. Uh, in his criticism of where the Republicans are. He's not pretending as though that there's, you know, a middle ground where uh, like-minded people can um, can meet. Because, frankly, Monroe, I don't see a middle ground on any issue. I think of the Republicans as being Russian. And I'm not talking about this communist and all this stuff, but lying and going way too far to where we've hit a point of no return with Russians in the war. Zelensky's not interested in, in talking peace right now. I mean, how could he make peace with, with Putin after all Putin has done? The only thing, the only way he can make peace is if they get rid of Putin and bring a new somebody in. Who wants to wants to wants to talk about past sins? With the Republicans, they have gone so far. If you look what they're doing with um, with um, abortion, you know, I mean, these these are the people who who are uh, pro life. They say, but in the meantime, will pass no laws to protect children once they're born. You know they're 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 great at wanting to protect embryos, and I mean, and some of them now have laws in some of the states where the point of conception yes it's it's, it's a life you yeah, know so and so they're good for that but once the kid is here they screw them you know they starve them to death um, it's okay for them to be uh, targets for gun nuts, other gun nuts. I mean, that's okay with them. And well, so we'll there's see. nobody, we got to get rid of, we, we, Democrats have to campaign on this gun stuff. They have to campaign on abortions and that voting rights and um, Black Lives Matter. Well, I could tell you right now that um, we'll get into this with Andrew, uh, okay. that the votes aren't there in the House, uh, excuse me, in the Senate uh, because of the filibuster. Right. Now, uh, I have this um, fantasy that the Dems pick up two seats 
in the uh, midterms in the Senate so that they yeah. don't need Manchin uh, right. and Cinema, who right. are effectively Republicans. Right. Uh, and so then they could, uh, like, for instance, the D.C. statehood bill, the um, uh, the gun control bill that Steve Kerr was talking about yesterday passed the House but has uh, died in the Senate. So they could uh, uh, entertain those and pass them without any Republicans don't want to compromise Republicans. Not one Republican wants to move left in any way. Even the so-called moderates. Fine. Just get rid of the filibuster. I think uh, it's outrageous that we've wasted two years um, with the stalemate because yeah, uh, mansion and cinema. Because um, if, if, if the Senate is, uh, the Republicans take over the House and the Senate is um, the Democrats lose one one Senate seat. So the Senate, this, the Senate is controlled by Republicans. Mitch wouldn't bat an eye to, to, to uh, kill the filibuster completely yeah. to get whatever their program was into place. I mean, he wouldn't he wouldn't hesitate for a New York second. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If he thought that was in his strategic best interest, it'd be gone. Absolutely. He wouldn't think twice about it. And uh, I could just hear the whatever uh, spin comes out of the mouth of Manchin, sort of justifying it. All right, before we bring Andrew Ellison, we're going to reach out to Andrew uh, right now and, and we'll shift to politics. I just want to get your thoughts on what happened uh, between uh, Tim Anderson, the great shortstop for my beloved Chicago White Sox, and Josh Donaldson, third baseman for the Yankees. Uh, and I wrote about this for the reader on Monday. It's all on my mind. Uh, but I'll uh, do a synopsis of it, uh, Monroe. Uh, one man, Tim Anderson from the White Sox, is black. The other man, uh, Josh Donaldson uh, for the Yankees, is white. And Donaldson has fallen into the habit of calling uh, sort of a mocking way Tim Anderson, quote-unquote, Jackie, as in Jackie Robinson. So he's taking a black man and just giving him the name of, like, the best-known black baseball player. Like, that's who you are now. And uh, it uh, boiled over. There was a fight uh, on the field. In the, a physical fight? Yeah, you know, one of those baseball fights where, yeah, you, right. you know, where they all run on the field and they hold each other. And, uh, right, exactly. Yeah, like hold me back. <laughs> yeah, no, you're lucky they're holding me back. Uh, I, uh, I've been watching those for many, many years. Uh, and um, so in the aftermath, there's all this discussion about whether that was racist and I'm stunned. Well, let me take, let me redo that. I'm always a little surprised by how resistant white people are to say something uh, is racist. I personally believe it's racist when you call a black man, a black baseball player, Jackie, as if that's all black players are Jackie. You get what I'm saying, Monroe? Yeah. And, um, and, and the protests, I just don't buy and so I'd like to ask you, do you think it's racist? Uh, first of all, we'll start with that. Uh, so do you think it was racist for uh, Josh Donaldson to call uh, Tim Anderson Jackie? Well, as you know, I don't follow baseball. Unless, unless one of the teams is in the World Series. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's serious. I'm not joking. That's the only time I pay attention to it. Wow. And so I, over, over the last... 60 or 70 years, I haven't paid much attention to baseball whatsoever. Okay. But, and, and I don't know who this Josh guy is, but 
if he were a serious fan of Jackie Robinson's as a player, and he was using that to uh, compliment Tim, then it would not be racist. But um, from what I've read and heard, that is not the situation. That um, it's sort of like um, black people referring to certain white people as Karen. It's not a compliment. Uh, and for the Karens who are good and non-racist and decent women, apologies <laughs> applied or <laughs> offered. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was racist. This this is racist because they the uh, didn't the players take up the chant, Jackie, Jackie. The fans, the, the New fans. York fans. Yeah, it was the fans of New York. Shame on them. They yeah. So after the fight. On Saturday, when the, and and everybody aired their opinions, uh, and Tim Anderson let it be known how offended he was by it, uh, and the White Sox let it be known how offended they were by it. The fans in New York's response was to boo Tim Anderson every time uh, he came to the plate and yeah. chant Jackie. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that. Well, see, I, I am I, okay. This is a, a footnote. I am of the opinion that um, most, not all, but most baseball players are from the same roots that the MAGA people are from. Um, back in, God, this is the mid 80s, 85, 86, 87, somewhere in that area, um, the White Sox having some problem or the Cubs, one of the teams. Since I don't pay close attention to baseball, I don't remember. But there was there there was some issue. And my friend Jack White was a it was the a, a, a correspondent for Time magazine here at that time. And apparently somebody had said there were no black ticket uh, season ticket holders for the team. And so he was asking me if I knew of any, and of course I did not. But the, the, the point I'm making is that Hispanics are big on um, baseball right now, but most black kids are interested in, in... Yeah. Well, Monroe, it was a lot different. We're going to bring on Andrew Ellison right now uh, and yeah. leave the conversation behind, but it was a lot different when you were a kid. I'm just telling you that right now. Oh, yeah. A lot yeah. more black players in the league. and uh, Right. Uh, you go to a White Sox game, there were a lot of black people at the game back in the day. Uh, yeah, but there aren't. I, well, the last time I've been to a baseball game was 22 years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I, I didn't see many black people back then. Uh, I just always find it uh, very interesting, the resistance white people have uh, to the, the term racism. That's a conversation oh, for another time. No, okay, let me make this point from yeah. my perspective. This is progress, actually, because there once was a time when white people were racist and proud of it. Now um, they are sh ashamed of it, so they don't want to be accused of being white, except Trump has given them some leeway, so... 
they're ashamed of it now as they were five years ago, six years yeah. ago, but they still are. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit uh, about your comment that most of the baseball players are from uh, MAGA background. I got to get not, shot not a lot players, of White Sox. The fans. The fans. Oh, the fans. Because the the play. a lot of the White Sox players uh, called called uh, Josh Donaldson out and stood by. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, no, sorry. I meant the, uh, fans, the fans, not not yeah. the players. Yeah. Uh, right, are, a, a large number of the players are, are black Hispanics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, all right, let's bring on uh, Andrew Ellison. This is his second appearance on the show, Monroe. There's a guy, I can't remember his name, but I could see his face on MSNBC. He's like a skinny guy with glasses. Kordaki. What's his name? Kordaki. Kordaki? Kordaki. So it's the, that's the guy who stands at the map, and he's yeah. like, he's got. He, he, he wears Chino pants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Boy Kordaki. Yeah. This kid, yeah. Andrew Ellison, can give Kardaki a run for his money. All right? I'm just saying, MSNBC, Andrew Ellison obsessively follows politics, knows the game. I liked was te- te- uh, testing him Monroe today. Just like, well, what about this election? Yeah. That one figured out that he wouldn't know it. He knew everyone. <laughs> so. Uh, he already gives CNN a call. Yeah, you gotta Kordaki could use the competition. Yeah, Kordaki, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, Kordaki, there's a kid in Indiana going to give you a run for your yeah, money. All right. It's, it's been right. Are you as good as Steve? Good to see you. Thank you for having me on the show today. Yeah. Did you hear the question from Monroe? Uh, I, I think I broke up on the last part. What was that? He said, uh, am I correct in saying that you're good? Uh, you know as much politics as Steve Kordaki? Oh, uh, my, my mom has often, uh, said that she thinks I, you know, I, I could put on a time pair of khakis. I could probably give him a run for his money there. So, um, no, I, I've, I've gotten that a little bit yet. Uh, yeah, well, I think he could give him his run for his money. All right, let's break down what went down yesterday. Uh, we've been talking a lot, uh, just to catch you up, Andrew, on the shootings uh, in Texas. So we'll get into the, uh, the issue of gun control as a political force a little later. Uh, but let's take it to key primary. Uh, it was in the, the state of Georgia, particularly on the Republican side. Uh, and much is being made of the fact uh, that uh, Brian Kemp mopped the floor with David Perdue. And Brian Kemp is the incumbent governor of the state of Georgia. Uh, he was challenged by David Perdue, who was a MAGA man, put up by Trump. Trump campaigned in the state uh, for Purdue, uh, accused Brian Kemp of um, looking the other way when the theft of the presidential election occurred in Georgia. Unbelievable accusation, no, not a basis anywhere uh, in truth, just some of the stuff that Trump makes up. Uh, and uh, Kemp mopped the floor with him. Your general takeaway uh, on this on this race. Yeah, as the primaries across the country have been ongoing in recent months, uh, most of the time we've seen that Trump's endorsement holds a lot of weight. It's been able to sway the elections in a lot of cases, especially in open races. Um, when it comes to a sitting governor running for re-election, uh, I think it's a little tougher for Trump to have big sway on that. Um, you know, Brian Kemp is an established brand at this point. Um, he depended on Trump's endorsement to win the primary in 2018. Uh, actually did better on his second go-round this time uh, by a couple points. So um, I, I think there is, at, at least from this election, we can see a sort of limit to how much sway Trump can have within internal uh, GOP politics. And the other interesting dynamic is that whereas Trump had been supporting David Perdue as the challenger in this primary, um, it was interesting to see that Mike Pence had actually been endorsing and campaigning with Brian Kemp. Um, 
uh, whereas whereas David Perdue toward the end of the campaign, he'd kind of been winding down, having small events, not really being out too much in the public. Brian Kemp was having these big rallies, having a lot of um, major power players in Georgia politics coming out and campaigning with him. And Mike Pence was actually present, uh, making his presence and support known. And so I found that to be an interesting inflection point in the changing dynamics of party politics there. And the other thing is Purdue is a terrible candidate. He doesn't mm-hmm. like talking to the people. He doesn't like mixing with the people. He's one of these rich men who like is in politics because he's bored, I guess, but uh, he is not a natural politician. A, a rich man with the right last name because uh, yeah. his, his cousin had been Sonny Purdue. He'd been the governor back in the 2000s. And so um, it's been a real fall from grace to see, you know, he, he kind of walked into the Senate in 2014, you know, he, he bought his way through the primary and having that golden last name. And, um, just kind of seeing his collapse in recent years, the way that he kind of blew the 2020 election after, you know, embarrassing himself in his first debate and not even showing up at later appearances, um, to his performance in this election, it's been a real fall from grace, so to speak. So what do you make of, uh, Mike Pence's role. Uh, I, f- I find Mike Pence a, a sort of bizarre character, uh, Andrew, and Monroe. Uh, this is a guy who ultimately did the right thing, in my humble opinion, when it came to uh, counting the Senate votes uh, and, and officially anointing uh, J- Joe Biden as president of the United States as the winner of the election. <laughs> And uh, as a result of him doing that, uh, a MAGA insurrectionist showed up at, at the Capitol with uh, like t- uh, hangman nooses. Like they're going to hang him. We want to find him to hang him. Anyone I know would be outraged that someone threatening them, their lives, threatening their family, etc. But this guy, he's like, he won't really come out. It's like he's almost non-human. Uh, in his reaction, this, in my opinion, Andrew, like he won't come out and denounce MAGA, but on the margins, he will by endorsing Kemp. Your thoughts? Yeah, um, I I don't think it should be lost that uh, Dan Quayle, of all people, was kind of the hero in that story because right. Mike Pence was equivocating about whether, oh, you know, should I do this? Should I not? Like he was having a genuine internal struggle over it because I think privately he's fine with it as long as he thinks that he stands to benefit personally. And once he sees, you know, the chaos that's unfolding from it, he starts to have second thoughts, but you had, you know, if you go back 30 or 40 years and you tell people that Dan Quayle would be a hero of American democracy, I don't think anybody would have believed you, but um, I mean, it's, it's been very interesting. I mean, you, you can trace that back to his time as uh, Indiana governor when, you know, he like, like th- throughout his time as the vice presidency, he was held up as, you know, well, Trump is this very chaotic figure, but, you know, the establishment can think that, like, Pence is kind of a counterbalance. He'll, he, he's like the, the, the cooling saucer to his presidency. But when he was governor, he was doing a lot of the same tactics. He tried to start up a state-run news agency um, that got shut down after one day because there was so much blowback to it. Um, you know, he was, he was passing very restrictive anti-LGBT legislation. He was... Um, giving all these tax cut giveaways to the wealthy, even when the legislature was telling them even they didn't want to pass it. So um, he's more or less been in lockstep with a lot of stuff that Trump has wanted. I think he's just recognized to some degree that like he would have a damage to his legitimacy if he tried to go in another way. And I think he's been struggling the last couple of years to find his way out of that mess. Cause on one level he's got that Trump connection, but you know, 
even even after being in lockstep for four years, there was never a single moment I can recall where Pence ever publicly deviated with Trump on anything. He always towed the line with every single thing Trump did. But the one time that Trump wanted him to like break American norms and give him the presidency again, he did it. He, he wouldn't do it. And and that was it. And the connection was lost. And yeah, well, but yeah, but that was because he couldn't find a decent excuse to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Quill was the, was the tiebreaker, shall we say? Yes. That. And, and, and um, both are from Indiana. One is basically a, a, a well, half a generation at least. Quail is older. Quail was vice president, and I'm sure that um, Quail has been Pence's hero for a long time. And, and I guess it's also worth noting that one, other than Cheney, he's the only living former Republican vice president. He's also, to my recollection, unless I'm forgetting, um, a good spell. I, I I think he might be the only living vice president who like was in a losing reelection campaign. And so he was like literally the only person that he could touch on to like get a point of feedback on this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I think, I think he's, I think he's struggling to find his place within the party these days. Um, you know, he, has he, no he's, place. he really, yeah. he really has no, he, he, he has no place because he, he has a, he has appeal with evangelical voters still. I, I think that's a strong 15 to 20% that he's working with. But I think beyond that, he's really going to struggle to find a cross appeal within the party. Okay. While, while we're talking about that, Andrew, tell me what impact you think the reports on the sexual misconduct among the Second Baptists and the evangelicals, is that going to have some impact on... Uh, the midterms or the 2024 are they're just going to shrug it off and keep going. Um, I don't know if it'll have much impact. I feel like, especially with the state of the church in, you know, 2022, um, within these evangelical churches, a lot of them have really self-selected for a lot of people who are already inherently, kind of tolerant of a lot of this behavior. I think I've never been to them. I wouldn't know, but it, yeah. it feels like there, there's a certain culture that's been very permissive of this type of behavior. You, I mean, you can go back to the televangelists 40 years ago, Jimmy Swagger and all them that were doing this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very patriarchal. I think it's, it's very permissive and accepting of terrible behavior and um, it's awful and it might move some people on the margins, but I imagine that people have already kind of self-selected for that. All right, let's go back to the uh, Georgia and another race, <clears throat> statewide race. Get your uh, thoughts on this one. And this one was, I think, in many ways, more of a slap in the face uh, to Trump. And Trump went after uh, Brad uh, Raffensperger, who is the uh, Georgia Secretary of State, and put up a uh, congressman, uh, Jody Heiss. Uh, to, I got so many emails, fundraising solicitation emails from Heiss. Uh, Heiss was really plugged into MAGA's machine. Uh, and Raffensperger was the official that Trump called up. They got a tape of it. Unbelievable that it hasn't been charged, uh, saying just get rid of the votes, that find the votes. Well, I forget how what number it was. It was the exact precise number he needed mm-hmm. to make him the winner in Georgia. Just find the votes. I'll do the rest, uh, which I don't know how that is not illegal. 
for a, a president of the United States to call a, a election official and tell him to cheat. Uh, don't know how interesting uh, attitude from the law and order party on law and order. Uh, and uh, so Brad Raffensperger was considered a traitor, a sellout. Uh, he was ripped just from one side of the state to the other. Uh, and he prevailed. I think he got 53% of the vote last I looked. Uh, Andrew, your thoughts and on uh, Raffensperger um, surviving this primary? Yeah, I think Raffensperger's had an interesting last two years because on one level, obviously, you know, we've had these extreme charges that have been brought forward that the president's trying to just rig the vote in this state and the secretary of state having to shut that down, insisting, like, we're not going to do that. And at the same time, you know, obviously having an eye on his own political career uh, and knowing that the legislature and the governor are passing like these really strict uh, voting rights restrictions um, through the legislature getting and passing a law, he's in charge of implementing a lot of that legislation. And so um, what you see in the last few years is he's kind of like walked the line very thinly um, between having had that legacy with Trump and uh, trying to appear that, you know, while, while I support election certification, I'm still going to be tough on election administration. We're not going to have, you know, illegal voting and stuff like that. So I think um, based on the election results, it would seem that he's towed that line pretty successfully. And I think um, you'll see a lot of crossover voting for him among suburbanites. Like he'll, he'll probably have a good chance of winning some suburban counties like Gwinnett and Cobb that are pretty democratic leaning these days. If they trended very heavily democratic, but uh, uh, you you might have a lot of Abrams Raffensperger voters or Warnock Raffensperger voters this year. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I, I think he seems to have found a, a lane to continue his career in politics. And do you think there's a lane in general for Republicans like him in the Republican Party? Uh, are there any takeaways from Georgia that a particular election where Republican voters? would be willing just to break away from Trump and his utter obsession with uh, redoing the 2020 presidential? Um, even in his case, it's tough to say that he's necessarily done a full break with Trump because, you know, Trumpism is the new establishment, you know, that as we will, we'll talk about more, I'm sure, but as we saw in Texas, you know, the, the Bush brand of Republican politics is very much out at this point. Um, Trumpism is very much in. And even if, you don't necessarily get along with him. You still have to kind of finesse that line, at least for the foreseeable future, um, while engaging in uh, anti-democratic behavior in other more subtle ways. And so I think um, e- even as we're seeing some of these, you know, quote unquote, you know, democracy defender Republicans uh, slipping through, they're still engaging in anti-democratic behaviors. So I think, um, It'll be interesting to see how the voting behaviors play out. And I, I think it'd be disappointing if voters were rewarding uh, Republican election officials for doing the bare minimum of just certifying elections and saying, oh, well, that's good enough. And I'll vote for you. I'm like, well, ideally, you'd want to vote for somebody who's making it you know, easier for you to vote and participate in the process. So. That is a very valid point. The bar is mighty low today uh, in America with uh, the Republican Party. Uh, and, uh, all right. I, I have a theory on all of this. And that's, uh, I think, and I've just sort of come to this, because as you know, a month or two ago, I had given up on Democrats and just said, get ready for the shellacking. But my theory now is that with all the infighting they're going through 
in the in, in the in the primaries that um, they're not going to be in good shape when we get to the general in, in a lot of a lot of uh, campaigns obviously not across the board but in any any place where this fighting for example here in Illinois with um, Irwin and um, Irvin er, 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 yeah er, and um, the farmer Darren Bailey yeah and Bailey with, with with those guys going at each other and Sullivan to throw them into the mix I I can't see how they they come out of this um, winning anything Andrew your thoughts yeah um, I I guess in response to that I think whichever of those two come out ahead and the Republican governor primary here in Illinois, I think J.B. Presker comes out the winner just because both of them have had to stake out such extreme positions in this primary that um, it, it's, it's going to be really hard to come back from that and uh, try to win her over, especially suburban voters. Like you can't win in Illinois without winning the color counties. Uh, you know, Bruce Rauner showed that you you pretty much have to win everything other than cook to even have a shot. And when you got somebody like Darren Bailey, you know, coming out and just flagrantly saying awful things about Chicago. It's like, I mean, that's, that's an interesting electoral strategy. I don't know if that's going to work out for him, but um, it's, it, it's very telling about the, the developing political culture in the state where it's becoming increasingly like Chicago land versus downstate. And um, just, just kind of the toxic political culture that's coming from that. I know that dozens of counties, I think downstate have now held, like local referendums about secession from Illinois and some of them are passing with like 70 or 80% of the vote, which is, you know, very concerning for state integrity in terms of, um, you know, you know, continuity of governance there. So it's, it's interesting how the Republican brain, at least within Illinois has trended toward a very hard, right, very toxic direction. That's pushing them further into the minority. It's kind of a, 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 a positive feedback loop. It keeps pushing them further. Right. So. No, and the, the Republicans in Illinois had a choice. They had a very definite choice. They could go, and they had two symbols of where the, uh, the party was at, uh, Donald Trump and Adam Kinzinger. And uh, Adam Kinzinger is a conservative Republican congressman, and I don't agree with him on absolutely anything, but he at least stood up for election integrity. Uh, Andrew, you're going to say, well, the bar's pretty low, Ben. Well, I mean, you know, when the difference is a coup, uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and Republicans could have gone his way. They didn't. They rebuffed him and they went with Trump. Uh, and so they made their bet, you know, and um, so they're going to, I think you're right. They're probably going to have to pay for it. All right. Let's go back to Georgia. Stacey Abrams versus Brian Kemp. Yeah, your early thoughts uh, on that uh, race. Yeah, um, she had a resounding primary victory against no one. She won it by acclamation. So, um, no, I, I think uh, it'll be an interesting rematch to watch. Um, you know, there, there are certain assets to incumbency as a governor versus an open race as there was in 2018. Um, you know, higher name recognition, higher fundraising, better connections within the state. That'll be an asset to camp. And at the same time, um, there's been continuing demographic change within Georgia, very rapid, very strong. Um, that's been almost universally democratic, just lots of people moving into the state uh, who are very democratic leaning. Um, Stacey it's, Abrams has said it's, a very... It's become the black Mecca. It, it has. I, yeah. 
Absolutely. And, I, and I've thought of it that way as well. And so it's l- l- lots of, especially black people moving into uh, the Atlanta Metro and throughout the state and very strong voter registration efforts under Abrams campaigns, um, getting people engaged for the first time. I think like one big change factor along with that from 2018 to 2022 was Joe Biden winning the state in the presidential election. And then, um, Ossoff and Warnock flipping the two Senate seats in 2021, because as opposed to some other states that flipped blue a while back, maybe like Virginia, for example, where, um, you know, about a decade ago, it started flipping really blue, but um, you might get a little complacent and you, you know, elect a Republican as governor in 2021. Um, voters are like completely engaged in Georgia right now. They're seeing higher primary turnout now than they were even seeing in 2018. Um, Black turnout in the primary in particular, I think was up a hundred thousand or something like that um, over the four years. And so um, voters are energized in Georgia in a way that they've never been in living memory. And so I think no matter what happens, um, especially because the electorate in Georgia is very inelastic and very polarized, um, it's going to be a very close race one way or the other. And I think Abrams has, built a machine over the last decade that has put her in a position to potentially flip the governorship, even in a tough year. Wow. Monroe, do you think uh, Stacey Abrams can win in Georgia? Yeah. I, 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 actually, I think she won the last time, but this story. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and what she's been doing for the past four years is uh, building uh burglary uh, burglar protection to some extent. We'll see if it's, it's enough of it. But uh, they're not going to make that, that same mistake. Uh, what I'm curious about is Warnock and Herschel um, uh, Walker. Well, yeah, Walker. Yeah, your what, thoughts on that, yeah. Andrew? What do you see with that, Andrew? Um, I think that the Senate race between uh, Warnock and Walker presents the best opportunity for Democrats just because Herschel Walker has such a messy personal history, uh, yeah. you know, with domestic violence and whatnot, but also just that, you know, this is, this is not a slam on NFL players. It's like, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're brilliant people within the league. It's just like that. It's, it's a difficult thing to transition from that straight to the U S Senate. It's like, the, it's, it's not really an entry level job in, in politics. And so um, I think that that really makes it a difficult transition for him um, just kind of knowing exactly what he's going to do. Like the press keep pressing him on the, you know, how he feels about certain issues and what he would do and not having very strong cogent answers. So yeah, he's not um, right. And we're not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think he's not, not the, not the finest person to bring forward as a nominee. And I think, you know, Mitch McConnell probably had a big, own goal right there getting behind him early because he's not he's not it he's not the best guy that they could have put forward and so i'm hopeful that um warnock has a, a very strong message to bring to the voters he has a very strong profile he has a ton of campaign cash i think he's closing in on like 30 million dollars in cash to spend in the election so far so um he'll, he'll have a strong operation and i'm hopeful that having him on the ticket can be beneficial to abrams and other Democrats that are also going to be on the ballot this year. And the battle for the Senate, uh, Pennsylvania will be pivotal. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a Republican Senator who is stepping down. So it'll be a open uh, race. If the Dems win, they prevail. Uh, they would have, they wouldn't have to depend on mansion 
uh, and they can hold uh, the rest of the country. Uh, and then they would need one more so they wouldn't have to pre- uh, depend on uh, cinema. Uh, so I, while... Yeah, uh, Fetter- and Fetterman looks like a stellar candidate to me from afar. He, I mean, he's, 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 he's liberal, but he's also every man in the state. I mean, he just, he just is a very good candidate, I think. They could, well, they could come up with a better candidate. And Monroe, this story just broke while we were on the air. Uh, there's going to be an official runoff uh, in uh, the vote count uh, for Dave McCormick. Uh, and Dr. Oz, who's Donald Trump's candidate. So the Republicans, yeah. their primary is not over. They've not settled on a candidate. It's such a close election. Right. Well, the, in their case, it, it would be going to a recount. recount they're, not, yes, yeah, recount. No, you're, you're good. Um, yeah, because it's, it's an impossibly close number of votes between the two of them. And so it's going to be um, a very fraught legal battle. Um, you know, it's basically a battle like who's got the best lawyers to help decide what Vote should and shouldn't count, and um, yeah. it's not lost on me that it, this is being settled by mail-in ballots, which Republicans claim aren't even legal anyway. So suddenly it matters, but um, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And obviously, you know, the longer or more protracted that uh, recount gets drawn out, the, the more beneficial that'll be to Democrats. Right. All right. Um, um, and, I, uh, we'll go now to Texas. And uh, before you came on the show, Monroe was uh, recounting uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, interrupting a Governor Abbott press conference uh, today on the issue of gun control. Really went right to his face uh, and let him have it and already gearing up for <laughs> that election uh, in November. Um, as I pointed out, O'Rourke lost the last time he ran statewide to Cruz. Uh the, the, the general consensus and most of the of the uh, Kardakis of the world was that he didn't have a chance uh, in this race. Uh, I'm starting to think maybe he does have a chance. Uh, what do you think, Andrew? Um, uh, hope always springs eternal. So I, I always try to remain an optimist about these things. But uh, the, the demographics of the state are still tough. Um, it is a very heavily blue trending state. Uh, the dilemma is that it, Texas is just such a massive state. There's just so many people that you you uh, you need to flip so many voters, uh, so, so many more voters in Texas than you might need to in another state that's uh, more competitive. So uh, it's getting there, but I think you know it, it might it, it may be like a couple years behind Georgia, where you know it just takes a little more time to get there. I do think that better work is a unique candidate for this moment in the sense that one, even if he doesn't win, you know, he's got the energy, the passion, uh, the campaign funds to make sure that he's a good tent pole for the ticket to make sure that a lot of the lower races are going to have what they need to try to flip some elections as well. But also that he has been uniquely situated as a candidate who has been outspoken on gun violence for many years now. Um, you know, he, he came out very strongly in 2019 after the El Paso shooting uh, for an assault weapons ban. And a lot of people had been uh, had pushed back on him at the time, saying that his takes were too extreme and that, um, you know, it, it would be a toxic brand. And even when Joe Biden was running, he's like, oh, you, you have to you're going to be attached to that kind of labeling and whatnot. But I think that he's been very resolute in his belief that we've had 
too many weapons of war on our streets and in our communities that have been causing so much damage for so long. And, and there's so many other factors that are tied into this, um, you know, that misogyny plays a big role in this. They've done studies on this and found that something like 80% of these mass shooters have various levels of misogyny that, you know, this, this shooter, you know, just yesterday, you know, he goes and kills his grandma right before he goes and kills all these kids. The Sandy Hook shooter killed his mom before he went to shoot off. Oh, did she die? So, Andrew, did she uh, die? She was still in critical condition the last I heard. Has she died? I, I haven't heard one way or the other. I hadn't seen that yet. I just knew that, um, you know, it's, it, it, it was a, it was a, it was a problematic trend. And so there's, there's a lot of factors that draw into this, but he recognizes that, um, you know, America is not the only country that has misogyny. America is not the only country that has, you know, like, violent music or TV shows or video games, but like we're the only country that like has as many guns as there are people in that it's, it's creating an environment where a lot of these toxic elements can, you know, compound together and create uh, opportunity for mass violence. And he's been very outspoken on that. And I think he's a uniquely uh, qualified candidate to run against Abbott and the, uh, governor Abbott in this election to speak out on these issues. That would be uh, quite an upset if uh, he were to prevail. I'm really rooting for him. Uh, on the other side, I promised uh, Andrew I'd read to you uh, uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, tweet that she issued right after the shooting was publicized. I said, Monroe, I would read this for you as well. I believe she was victorious yesterday in her primary, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Pretty sure she was. Last I looked, she was up over 50%. So this is... This is her response to the uh, killings in the, the school in Texas. Quote, our nation needs to take a serious look at the state of mental health today. Sometimes meds can be the problem. America is failing our youngest generations from decades of rejecting good moral values and teachings. We don't need more gun control. We need to return to God. And um, so that was her response. Uh, from my perspective, uh, Andrew and uh, Monroe and the little uh, blue bubble that I inhabit, that's an outrageous, uh, insulting uh, response to such a tragedy. Uh, and then I, but I also know the world, there's a big world outside of my little blue bubble. And uh, so I'm curious how it would play uh, outside of my bubble. We'll start with Monroe and then we'll go to uh, Andrew. Monroe, how do you think the Marjorie Taylor Greene's response will play uh, in America? Uh, uh, among the QAnons and the MAGAs, quite well. But um, in the suburbs, I don't think so much. And that's what's important uh, right now in, in, in American politics is the suburb, suburban vote, particularly the the uh, white woman vote. How did it play with you, Monroe? Did you find yourself uh, being strangely attracted to the ideology of Marjorie? See, see, I'm not a good test case on this because uh, first and foremost, I'm either an agnostic or an atheist, depending on which side of the bed I wake up in, in the morning. And secondly, my thinking because of that is, well, if God was so good, why did he let it happen in the beginning? And so, you know, it makes no sense to me. That's, 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 that's how it works for me. 
All right. Uh, I had a feeling you were going to say that, uh, Monroe, and uh, you speak for me on this particular issue. Uh, Andrew, I'm not going to ask you for your personal beliefs on this. I'm going to ask you just to be straight up analyst. And uh, how do you think it plays? Uh, well, you know, Indiana really well. You uh, that's where you live. Uh, and you, that's Mike Pence country. So how do you think it plays uh, outside of my little blue bubble? Um, it's tough to say, cause I think, you know, we've, we've it, like as Americans and as who's well, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's been this cycle where, you know, this, this tragedy will happen and, uh, you know, people will talk about thoughts and prayers, but then there's no action on it. And then, you know, the process repeats, you know, uh, but I was saying today that like now is the time to take action, to prevent the next shooting. It's always, you know, there's going to be another one if you don't do anything. And so I think, um, on one level, I think, people are obviously kind of fed up with this. I think um, the U S Senate obviously is very out of lockstep with what most Americans are thinking about this because yeah. the Senate is not a representative body of what the voters vote for. And so uh, not, not, not to mention, you know, the, the connections to the, the firearm lobby and all the money that comes with that. So um I, I think the people are obviously fed up with the situation. It's just a matter of achieving political change to match that anger. Yeah. I would love to see that kind of critical change. It hasn't happened uh, in, in your lifetime, uh, Andrew, you know, you're a lot younger than Monroe and myself. Uh, you came of age right around Sandy hook and you've been following politics passionately in the 10 years since Sandy hook and nothing has happened because in the aftermath of 20 kids being killed, uh, so I'm always try to remain hopeful and optimistic. Otherwise I would lose my mind. We'll close with a little rivalry in the democratic party. Get your thoughts on it. Uh, this election has not been called yet. It's down in Texas, a heated battle between an incumbent congressman named Henry Cuellar, uh, and an AOC type, a challenger from the left, uh, Jessica Cisneros. Uh, last I looked, uh, Andrew, it was, she, he was up by, relative handful of votes it's very similar to the senate race the republican senate race and uh in pennsylvania it's so close there's probably going to be a recount um and this of course was a battle of ideology within the democratic party uh Cuellar is one of the few anti-abortion democrats in congress uh, in in the aftermath of the leaked uh, roe v wade ruling which is going to obliterate roe uh <laughs> I don't know how the Democrats can tolerate somebody like this because it's all hands on deck moment. Uh, and yet um, his district is um, more conservative, I guess, than my district. And it's neck and neck. Uh, so what do you think this says about the uh, the showdown in the Democratic Party ideologically? Yeah, um, I I would further emphasize one of your points is that he's the only Democrat left in the U.S. House who still identifies as pro-life. And so. Um, there, there's definitely been a movement within the party to create consistency on the issue of choice. Um, the primary had a very ideal or a very regional breakdown to it where Jessica Cisneros was getting incredible margins out of the San Antonio Metro where she's getting like 85% of the vote. And, um, you go further South down to the Laredo area and further, uh, you know, closer to the very far Southern border, the Rio Grande Valley, uh, where he's getting similar 85% margins. And so, um, it was a very regional primary in how it's broken down. I think he's up by something like 177 votes or something like that. And typically when you have recounts, you can maybe expect the upper bound of change to be about 300 to 350 votes. And so there could be 
uh, a genuine change in the primary outcome based on uh, how that recount might play out. Uh, another factor is that obviously he's he's been under indictment for um, some engagement that he's had with the Azerbaijani government, and so uh, it'll be interesting to see if he even hangs around as a member of Congress for much longer. But it's it's also undeniable that uh, Cuellar has very strong pull with especially uh, uh, Tejano voters in the the very southern parts of the district who have been very curious about the Republican party under Trump. There were very rightward swings in these areas. And so there are a lot of people in that region who might vote for Cuellar as the Democrat, but if, you know, Cisneros was a Democratic nominee, they might vote Republican instead. And so it, it's a weird situation where uh, the Democratic congressman under indictment might be electorally stronger than his primary opponents. So um, it's it's a, a tricky situation to say the least that they're dealing with there. It is, and AOC uh, came out strong in a, a, a tweet denouncing Nancy Pelosi for having endorsed Square, mm-hmm. uh, which surprised me because usually AOC is reluctant uh, to criticize uh, Pelosi. I think she once called her the mama bear. You know, she once spoke mm-hmm. really uh, highly of her. Uh, so this just shows you where the passions are in the Democratic Party. And yes. Again, in my blue bubble, uh, Andrew, the notion of an anti-choice Democrat is mind-blowing. Uh, yeah, it, I, I, I think it's a tricky balancing situation because Pelosi and AOC are obviously playing different roles. There were Pelosi is, you know, the, the CEO of the House pretty much. She's having to look out for, you know, keeping all of her ducks in a line, especially with only a five or six seat majority. And especially with him being one of the uh, relative caucus leaders, you know, keeping him in line, whereas AOC is freer to, you know, speak out on ideological matters. So I think um, it's it's a change in, uh, you know, a generational approach to politics and also just where kind of each of them stands within the caucus. Absolutely. And uh, I just urge everybody, there's a game going on, a political, Monroe knows this because he's been around politics a long time. And uh, Nancy Pelosi's playing one game. Uh, she's trying to keep control of the House, and, exactly. You know, uh, and she does a pretty good job in that particular arena of playing that game. And it may drive me nuts that uh, Cuellar is the congressman, but I completely understand uh, what uh, Nancy uh, Pelosi is doing. And he's been reliable on on uh, a lot of Democratic issues. I mean, it's not – I mean, he, he, uh, he hasn't been as bad as Manchin, I don't think, even. But you know, but he's 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 he he got a bunch of Catholics, and he's Catholic, and so he's doing what he's doing. Well, by and the way, been, go ahead, go ahead, Andrew. I was just gonna say, and, they, and they've been voting for him for I think over twenty years now down there, right. and, and he he's always been a little squishy as a Democrat. Like I think he endorsed Bush in two thousand four, but you know, you got the Texas connection there. But um, he's he's a known quantity, and that's that's just a real asset for incumbency like i was talking about with Kemp. it's like it's it's the name you know and if you voted for somebody once you're more likely to vote for them again unless you have like a really really strong reason not to so um that that incumbency has been a great asset for him yeah by the way a little while ago uh, uh andrew was talking about how the bar is pretty low uh in the republican uh, uh side of the aisle i would say uh, monroe uh, it's pretty low on the democrats side of the aisle when you say uh don't worry queer it's not as bad as mansion uh, the bar is low. <laughs> He's not as bad as Mansion. 
Manchin's position on the filibuster is just so insane. Not quite sure what to make. Just become a Republican. Just, just become a Republican. Manchin. Yeah, no, no. Um, Manchin has been influenced by um, the rich, the ultra rich. I mean, it, he, f- first of all, he's one of them. Yeah, he also has, has been influenced by them. And while he tries to hide it, he doesn't hide it that well as far as I'm concerned. No. All right, we uh, run out of time. We're going to head off. Uh, and before I start just breaking out into a general cough attack, I've been fighting a cold all show. Uh, and uh, Monroe, I told you Andrew knew his stuff. And I just got a, a text message from Steve Kardacki saying, don't put that kid on anymore, okay? He's showing me up. Uh, kidding, folks, I did not really get it. You always got to say, I'm just kidding, because there might be someone that goes, wow, Ben got a text message from Steve. Uh, so, Andrew, thank but, you very but, much. But, but CNN just called me and wanted to know how they could get in touch. No. I knew how to get in touch with him. So. Monroe, he literally knows absolutely every race okay uh I, there's a list of races that i haven't even gotten to for this show because we've run out of time which we'll get to eventually i got a whole list of races coming up he will know every single race every candidate uh it's kind of reminds me of myself in many ways um thank you I'm, I'm closely tracking the Evanston dog catcher race right now actually <laughs> <laughs> my beloved hometown. Where, where do you live in indiana uh, I'm from Kokomo, Indiana. Although I've I've bounced around in various different places in Illinois the last few years. So, uh, and I'm from Gary. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. and went to IU in Bloomington. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. as did I. I graduated yeah. there in 2016. So pol- political science naturally. So. Uh, and I'm just going to say this about Monroe and Gary. He always says that he's from Gary. He got out so fast, Andrew. Like mm. he, and he's never he, he Monroe is to Gary when Barack Obama is to Chicago. Got out as soon as he could, and never. <laughs> and, I, and I went to DC first. Yes. That was my first stop. Yeah. Uh, the difference is they have not created yet a uh, Monroe Anderson Cultural Center in Gary like they have the Barack Obama right. Presidential Center, but it's coming. Right, uh, exactly, right, for sure. Uh, anyway, Kokomo, Indiana, uh, the great Aretha Franklin once wrote a song about it. All right, very good. Uh, I think uh, Andrew and I are the only two people in the world that know that. Uh, Monroe Anderson, thank you very much. Uh, Andrew Ellison, thank you very much. Folks, check out that Aretha Franklin Kokomo song. It is a beautiful song it'll choke you up make you feel really good first snow and kokomo yes first snow and kokomo great song by the great aretha franklin she wrote it herself about a bus ride she took uh to kokomo back in the day all right uh monroe thank you very much uh thank you anderson andrew ellison uh very much we're gonna have you back because you know your stuff and i also want to thank the man the myth the legend the pride of george baldwin illinois without whom this show would be possible and as monroe Andrew Ellison and Aretha Franklin will tell you back home in Alton they call in Dr. D and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Mm-hmm.